I want to talk to you this morning out of uh, 1 Timothy. So if you have your Bible, turn there in chapter 3. We've just come through a season of campaigns and elections. And uh, across the board, nationally, uh, statewide, local elections, campaigns. No doubt uh, you, as I, have been barraged by all sorts of claims from all sorts of candidates. People who attempt to convince us that they are the most qualified, that we should vote for them. And uh, in most cases, unfortunately, the campaigning was brutal. And uh, lots of claims, you don't know what to believe about who, all manner of things are said about people. And uh, sadly, the winner of any particular campaign is not always the most qualified person uh, for that particular office. I think that so many voters are turned off by a lot that goes on in our political system and record apathy led to tragic low turnout. The greatest tragedy, though, is that uh, most of the statistics bear, bear the fact that uh, one in six Christians voted. One in six. That, is, uh, that, is, that, that ought not to be. You've heard me talk to you about that before. I think that every Christian should be wholly invested in the process, praying, participating, becoming informed, calling, finding out who the judges are. I know it's the, that's the hardest thing is to find out the information on the judges. But it can be found out. It can be had. So I think we need to be redouble our efforts, certainly as Christians, uh, not just trust to the candidate who has the best media image, who looks the best. Um, and so the, tragically, the world suffers from this and... and um, I think as we look at and uh, appoint and vote for and nominate uh, leaders in the church, selecting leaders in the church is a whole different issue, and the criteria are certainly different. Um, We don't politic for office in the church. We don't boast. We don't participate in power games, if you will. Popularity contests have no place in the church, and uh, in some churches you see that. They're the people in, involved in the positions of authority and responsibility are there be, because they're well entrenched in the power of the church, or they're popular people in the church, and not always for the best reasons. Personal character and spiritual maturity. Let me say this, two, two terms again. Personal character and spiritual maturity should be the key issues for selecting leaders in the church. Would you agree? And we're going to do that this morning. And as I've asked you to turn to 1 Timothy, there's a companion passage in Titus chapter 1. We're not going to look at that, but you can use that as companion reading. I want to call your attention to this passage, the first seven verses of chapter 3 of 1 Timothy talk about the issues of character, personal quality, maturity that should mark the life of those who are overseers in the church. They are the chief elders. They are the leaders, if you will, however, whatever term you want to use, the, 
the pastors, the shepherds, and so forth. But these qualities, as we, we're just going to read through them. I want to comment on them quickly. But as we do so, I want you to consider also uh, these should mark the life of every Christian in increasing, in increasing uh, quantity, shouldn't they? So not just the overseers, not just the elders. Every Christian should aspire to these qualities marking their lives. So uh, as we consider our, our leaders this morning, uh, consider your own life too in these contexts. Read with me these seven verses, if you will. Paul writing, of course, to Timothy and to Titus, who are pastors. They're pastoring their first churches, if you will, in Ephesus, and uh, he's instructing them how to have church. He's, this, is, this is what's necessary uh, for a healthy, growing, maturing church. And amongst those things, he gets to talking about the qualities that should mark the leaders of the church. And as a leader, so go, so, the, so go the people, we're told. He says, here's a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Isn't that nice? It's, it's a noble thing to aspire to lead in the church, to, in effect, be uh, the chief servants of the church. He says, now the overseer must be above reproach. Must be. The husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to much wine, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. And then there's a parenthetical statement in verse 5. He says, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. So let's, let's look at these qualities, and I want to just kind of race through them with you, and, uh, and then I want to have you meet. You have a short biographical sketch of the four men who have been nominated, and I'll talk to you about that a little bit more in a minute, nominated for our church council. But let's look at these. First of all, Paul says he must be above reproach. Does that mean he must be absolutely perfect? No, it means very simply that the characteristic pattern of his life is such that he lives it according to biblical principles, biblical standards. His life has that trend to it. He obeys God. His life is marked by these things that characterize the Bible, biblical truth. That the fact is that there's no um, verifiable, unresolved charges of wrongdoing that can be brought against him. These above reproach. And of course, from verse 7, it includes a good reputation with outsiders, people who are not part of the family of the church. And we know that Satan loves to ruin the witness of the church through discrediting its leaders, and we've seen that over the years at a major level. I've seen it in our own community and known other pastors who have fallen and such. So we know that uh, it's important to be above reproach. He must be the husband of but uh, one wife. The idea behind that is that he's a one-woman kind of man. He's not flirtatious. Um, he's not a womanizer, if you will. Uh, can be single. Doesn't necessarily have to be married, but even if he's single, he's still that kind of one-woman kind of man. The idea is it, it, he exhibits stability in his life. 
order in his life. Um, in the world, where even some of the highest places, that we, as we have seen, are, are deluged with immorality, the Christian church certainly must demonstrate the purity and the stability and the uh, sanctity of what the Christian home is all about, and that through its leaders. So it must be the a one-woman kind of man. Next, he must be temperate. That means balanced in his living. Balanced. He's not prone to, to extremes. Fanaticism on one hand or legalism to the other extreme. Doesn't lose his physical, personal, or spiritual orientation. He's a stable, steadfast person, clear in his thinking. He's temperate. And some of these overlap, obviously, self-controlled, able to exhibit a disciplined life, growing in Christ-likeness, in control of his passions and his appetites. Nothing controls him. Nothing governs his life yet except the Holy Spirit. And this is not merely the result of self-effort. Remember, self-control is part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? So it's not, he's just, he's just, humanly um, self-controlled. It's a result of the flow and the move of the Spirit of God in his life. He lives according to the Spirit, as the Bible says. He depends on the Holy Spirit and in so doing makes wise choices as we have been talking about. Very simply, his life is in order. He lives for God. He doesn't live for himself. High standard, would you agree? Must be respectable. Again, some overlap here. Respectable. The idea is his life is orderly and well arranged. In other words, he conducts his life in such a manner that he re- earns the respect. He's respectable. He earns the respect of people who look at his life by how he conducts it. Doesn't run from crisis to crisis because of his own disorganization. And uh, some of us know what that's like, huh? Hospitable simply means loving strangers. A leader in the church certainly ought to show a a friendliness to newcomers, a willingness to help others who need assistance. All of that is encompassed in the idea of being hospitable. Able to teach. Has the ability to communicate truth. Doesn't need necessarily have the gift of teaching, but is able to communicate truth Uh, and also uh, the ability to receive truth. So uh, can be taught as well as teaching. Not given to much wine. This is certainly important. We don't want any tipsy drunks. (laughs) Want anybody who's, who's dependent on drugs or alcohol or any kind of addiction. I mean, a drunk is a disgrace in ordinary society, let above, let alone the church. So certainly this should go without saying, but we still need to, to point it out. The next one is interesting, not violent, but gentle. The term violent refers literally to one who would strike out, strike out with words or indeed in action. Um, doesn't have a chip on his shoulder, if you will. One who is gracious, and kind, forbearing, considerate, generous. Not a striker, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. Again, we see some overlap here. Not quarrelsome, not 
commonly given to being argumentative. It's okay to, to disagree. It's okay to argue over important issues. Uh, but to be argumentative is an entirely different thing. Uh, not given to controversy, not given to disputing. Um, that shows certainly a, um, a flaw in the character of someone who's always given to arguments and disputing. Not stubborn in the face of reasonable objections. Is able again to be taught and able again to receive, be permeable. This person uh, should be able to determine between the core issues and the peripheral issues. What am I going to fight and die over? Where am I going to take my stand? I'm going to take my stand over core issues, not peripheral issues. I'm going to take my stand over things like the deity of Christ, the Trinitarian view of God, salvation by grace through faith, and any number of of substantial, core, critical um, Christian doctrines, not necessarily peripheral issues. I'm not going to argue with you over over tongues. A lot of people like to argue over those kinds of things. Not, that's not something to be argued about. So this person should be uh, essentially not quarrelsome, peaceable, and not inclined to fight. We don't want fights on the church council. <laughs> not a lover of money. Not a lover of money. The idea is not that person is not centered on the accumulation of worldly wealth. This is not the goal of their life to become rich and accumulate worldly wealth. Uh, places a greater priority on laying up treasure in heaven. What a, what a model. Laying up treasure in heaven. And no one should be able to accuse a leader of using his or her position for personal profit, personal financial gain. And certainly uh, they're not to use unethical or questionable tactics to make money. And sometimes in the church that's happened. People have been called into question uh, over their use of money and how they've chosen to make money. Bottom line is that they give more attention to people than they give to things. More attention to people than to things. And if they happen to be wealthy, that's not a bad thing. If God has chosen to bless them, uh, the question is, is this person rich in good deeds and generous and willing to share, according to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 18 and 19? Next, he must manage his family well. Is he a good steward over every relationship uh, that God has entrusted to him, more particularly his family relationships? Are his children obedient and respectful? No father is perfect, but the behavior of his children should, in fact, reflect his instruction and his leadership. No one should be able to accuse his children of being wild and insubordinate. And Titus, Paul says to Titus in chapter 1, verse 6, that the children should be believers. Important for overseers. And then not a recent convert. You don't take a brand new believer and make him an overseer in the church. You don't make him a leader in the church. For a number of reasons. One is the new believer hasn't yet developed a good reputation as a Christian. New believer is ignorant of biblical principles and scriptures and um, doesn't have a firm grounding and solid doctrine. So you don't want to put him in that place. A new convert, a recent believer, is a novice, a neophyte, from the Greek word neophotos. 
Interesting word. It literally means to wrap up in smoke. The idea behind that is that they could become wrapped up in a cloud of conceit. They could become proud. They could become conceited. And pride comes before the fall. That's right. And so they, they fall. So you do them a great disservice by putting a new convert into a position of leadership. We want them to grow, mature, season, be in the church for a good length of time as they grow and mature, and then we look for leadership. And lastly, they should again, as we said earlier, have a good reputation with outsiders. That's a formidable list of qualities, isn't it? Formidable list. And uh, we review this list, we study this list every year, and uh, as many of you who have been part of this church for any length of time are aware that once a year we do have an election nomination, actually, for our church council. And I want to call your attention to a couple of pieces of paper. First, on your notes, you, as you just took notes with me, you follow along, you also have listed on your notes the job description for church council. Now, the church council is the governing board of our church. The church council is my boss. They oversee the entire function of the church. Every ministry, everything comes under the umbrella of their oversight. All the finances, everything happens in that environment. They're charged with that responsibility, first of all, to pray for the church. And then as you go down that list of responsibilities that they're charged with addressing, the church council serves for two years. We rotate four off every year, so there's a staggered group. There's always four on the council who come from the previous year, and then four rotate off, and new, four new guys come on. And they serve for a period of two years. And uh, we meet every Saturday morning uh, from 7 till 9, um, come rain or come shine. And uh, those meetings are, are sometimes vigorous. They are uh, interesting. Um, they're just, for me, they're, quite frankly, they're a joy uh, to be part of. And uh, so we nominate four church council, four new church council members every year. This is a long process. It takes us weeks and weeks. We go through all the names of all the men in the church. We want the men to be the overseers of our church. And we go through all the names. We review them, pray about them, until God finally surfaces four names, four men, who are looked at and looked at and, over and, and, and studied and prayed about. And those four names are brought then to the congregation. Your part in this is the final ratification of these nominees. What I mean by that is that we have done all that we know how at the level we are in terms of myself as the pastor and the other church council members who are the nominating committee to identify these men and to qualify them, pre-qualify them. So we, we looked, we prayed, we thought, and uh, come up with these names. But we don't know them exhaustively in every situation. So the congregation is the last step in the process to validate this choice or not. That's why you have the ballot in your, in your bulletin. We're going to pray in just a moment, and then we're going to, I'm going to ask you to mark your ballots. Now, if you know of something... That would, and you and you you have to have firsthand knowledge. It's not hearsay. It's not second, thirdhand knowledge. It's you know so and so, and you know of something that is a serious enough character flaw that would disqualify them, that the present uh, nominating committee would not be aware of. Then on your ballot next to their name, you mark no. If you know of something, 
that would be significant enough on, based on what we've read in 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you vote, vote no for any one or more persons, then write your name and address and phone number on that ballot so that I may contact you this week and find out what the issue is and see if we can't get it resolved or if it's a serious enough issue that will disqualify that candidate. If you don't know any of the candidates personally, you don't know anything about them beyond what you've read and what you're going to hear from them this morning. You don't know anything that would disqualify them. You have no reason to vote no. Then how should you vote? Yes. yes. If you vote yes on all four candidates, guess what? You don't have to put your name, address, and phone number. Isn't that great? So that's our process. We're going to pray. We're going to ask the Lord to direct our, our vote this morning. And uh, we pray that he will provide for us, for our church council. This is a very, very, very important ballot. These men are going to be responsible and in charge of this church for the next two years. The decisions they make on Saturday mornings are going to determine the direction that we take. You have to understand how critical this is. So when we pray, you just pray, Lord, give us wisdom. Amen? Father, thank you again for your incredible grace to us. And